The text to which I'd like to draw your attention this morning is Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Mark 10, 32 to 34. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can turn there. We also provide Bibles in the backs of the seats in front of you, the black covered volume. And if you're using that, it'll be on either page 917 or 976, depending on which version of that you have. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. I'll start by reading the text and asking for God's blessing. This is the word of the Lord. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise." Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of life you've revealed to us in Scripture. We thank you for how the written word reveals the incarnate word, the one who must be the object of our faith, the one that you've given as your greatest gift from heaven. And Father, we could ask for nothing greater this morning than to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. For our transformation into his likeness, for our encouragement, for our endurance in faith, for our conviction of sin that you want to root out of our lives, and for our worship, most of all, in all these things, to draw adoration from our souls to the one who deserves it all. We pray that you would work mightily through your word. Give me the words to speak. Use me. Make me faithful. Make me bold. Make me clear. And may every listener have an alert, open ear, and a soft heart so that you can work among us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We all know that sinking feeling of facing an unpleasant experience before us that we have to get through. Where I'm, I'm waiting on the precipice and I know it's my responsibility to push myself forward and go through it. It could be a painful medical procedure or a tense confrontation with another person. Or just in the winter when it's cold and dark, just getting out of bed sometimes. Or it could be jumping into a cold swimming pool for practice when you know it will shock your system. Now these examples, of course, vary in their intensity and their urgency. But what would it take to drive you into the teeth of horrific injustice and suffering? Of course, this brings us to our picture of Jesus in today's text. He's traveling to Jerusalem with his disciples and a crowd of others following him. And against that backdrop, he gives a detailed account of the sufferings that await him there in Jerusalem. And this is not the first time Jesus predicted his sufferings and his resurrection on two prior occasions in this central section of Mark. He did it once in chapter 8. He did it once in chapter 9. And then now, third and finally, he's doing it in chapter 10. 
And in this part of Mark, here's how kind of how it works. Each time he predicts his sufferings, we then learn something else about what it means to follow him. To put it in a nutshell, who he is, he's the anointed king, the Christ, who is also the suffering servant. And all of this, both him being the Messiah, the anointed one, and the suffering servant, was all prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. But as a result of him not only being a victorious king, but a suffering servant, his kingdom is a place where the lowly, the last place ones, are exalted to the top. And those who are great in a human and worldly sense, the proud, the self-sufficient, they don't qualify for his kingdom. Now we're about to move into the last round of this back and forth where we learn about Jesus and then we learn about discipleship. And it begins with Jesus' third and most detailed prediction of his sufferings. Then next week, Lord willing, as we look at verses uh, 35 through 45, we'll see the implications that this has on what it means to follow him. So we are setting the table for a word about discipleship, but that's not yet. Today's text is not primarily about driving us into some kind of action. It's mostly about beholding. The application, the point that God means to shape our lives with his word today is mostly for us to see Jesus, to see a picture of the son of God on the way to his cross. And if we see it right, this is a vivid and memorable picture that I pray will burn itself into our minds because we ever need clear views of Jesus in His suffering on the cross. And not only that, but Jesus pressing toward the cross. Now this morning finds us in a wide variety of conditions. Of course, it's New Year's Day. And some of us might be excited and eager to launch a new lap around the sun. We may have made some resolutions about ways that we want to improve our lives. And we may be hopeful for some positive changes that we want to see. And if that's you, then you need a fresh view of the cross. Because without the cross of Christ and you're standing in His grace, your pursuit of good habits, good as they may be, will either crush you or puff you up with self-righteousness, which is even more dangerous. And for others, things may not be so bright today. Maybe the new year seems to mock you because even the thought of making changes to your personal habits only reminds you of all the times that you've already tried and failed to eat better, to exercise more, to read your Bible daily, and so on. The calendar has changed, but you're still you, and I'm still me. Or perhaps the tiring wake of the holiday season we've just been through, maybe the dreary weather that we've had, the illnesses that are going around to all these households, and maybe the struggles that we know our brothers and sisters are facing. Maybe these things all combine forces to weigh us down with discouragement. So if you're depressed or discouraged today, then guess what? You too need a fresh view of Jesus heading to the cross. Because no matter how things get for you, how bad they get for you, Christian, you have a Savior who loves you and who gave Himself for you to win your soul to Him forever. You need a fresh view of the cross. 
So despite all the diversity of conditions that we all face, what we share is our urgency of need to see the glory of Christ, the willing servant who laid down his life for our sins. So that's our aim this morning. It's simply to behold the servant's willing sacrifice. That's the main point of all this. Behold the servant's willing sacrifice. And the way we're going to behold his sacrifice, to get more specific, is that the glory of Jesus appears most particularly in the ironies of this picture. Now, irony is when you think you're going to get one thing, but you get another thing that's very different. It's not, like, not quite like rain on your wedding day, it's, but it's something like um, when you, you have certain expectations and they're broken and in a way that surprises you and shows you this is quite opposite. And ironies can show glory because of how other they show things to be. When something is truly glorious, it's irony that brings glory out. Let me give you an example. I would expect if you see a seven foot tall man, you would expect this man to have no coordination. And in many cases, you'd be right. But when he does have coordination, in fact, when he can skillfully play center in the NBA, that's amazing. Or I would think that no artist could create something beautiful using a crude tool like Microsoft Paint. If you ever played around with Microsoft Paint, can you imagine? Look, someday, not now, someday Google Microsoft Paint art and see what people have done with Microsoft Paint. And it's the irony of using such a crude tool to create such beauty that showcases glory that showcases creativity and skill in the most powerful ways and for this reason as we behold the servant's willing sacrifice the lord will draw worship to christ from our hearts by showing us seven ironies that's what'll kind of frame our time here seven ironies that help us behold the servant's willing sacrifice so the first irony is this his pace was urgent Though his purpose was suffering. His pace was urgent, though his purpose was suffering. And this is mostly regarding verse 32. That Jesus, they're going on the road up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. Now Jesus and his disciples have been in the southern region of Judea and Perea, which is just the region across the Dead Sea to the east. And now, in that region, Mark shows us that he's traveling to Jerusalem, the city in that region. And verse 32 sets the scene for us. What does this picture look like in your mind's eye? It looks like 13 people walking together on a road, and then there's a bigger crowd nearby. But one of those 13 people is pressing forward with a body language that bespeaks urgency and purpose. He is a man out to get somewhere. He has no time for dawdling or delays. Now, when we're pressing hard to get somewhere, what's going on usually? It's it's usually either that we're most eager to get to something good or that we're most eager to get away from something bad. That's when someone moves with purpose. We want to get to something good or away from something bad. And if all you saw was this man's body language, you would probably guess that he's going to receive a gift or claim some kind of prize at his destination. But then in the next two verses, Jesus' uh, body language in view of what he says is stunning because he's not pushing ahead of everyone and driving the pace in order to be hailed as a hero and placed on a throne in Jerusalem. 
What is in his mind? What is the task that he's driving toward? He's moving toward the sufferings that await him. What he describes in verses 33 and 34. Now Isaiah prophesied about these sufferings of the Lord's servant in chapter 50 of Isaiah. And after detailing some of his sufferings, the abuses that he would endure, he says this in Isaiah 50 verse 7. This is the voice of the servant speaking. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. His face is set like a stone. He's resolved and unyielding for the suffering that lies ahead. There's nothing remarkable about a man walking quickly. And there would also be nothing remarkable about a man knowing danger was ahead Dragging his feet, delaying, trying to avoid it. But behold this glory that Jesus goes urgently to his sufferings. Don't dare think of him as an unwilling victim. Don't dare pity poor Jesus as an unfortunate one ground up in the wheels of human injustice. Think of him as a shepherd who's going on purpose to lay down his life for his sheep. He says in John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He says there in John 10, he's laying down his life to obey his Father. Uh, he also, we, we learn in Hebrews 12 too, that he's laying down his life for the joy set before him. The vindication and the reward that lies on the other side of the grave. And he's pressing forward to lay down his life in love for his people. Just as Paul will write in Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself for me. Christian, he is surging and pressing to the cross because he loves you. Out of loving obedience to his father, out of trust in his father's resurrection and vindication, and out of love for you and me, and for all who call upon his name and trust his salvation. The second irony of this picture is that he ascended, that's going up, he ascended to Jerusalem while descending to humiliation. He ascended to Jerusalem while descending to humiliation. Now the Bible weaves together a rich connection between geography, that is locations on a map, topography, which has to do with elevations, high and low, and theology, the knowledge of God. Let me explain. It all kind of converges on Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city on a mountain. And it's also the location of the temple. Now the Old Testament portrays the temple as the touch point between heaven and earth. The temple is the closest place of contact between the Lord's spiritual heavenly dwelling and man's physical existence on earth. So it's fitting that the temple would be built on a mountaintop because some have, have said mountains are often the place where divine encounters happen. In the Bible, the mountaintops can function like the outskirts of heaven. The greatest moments of man's encounters with God took place on mountaintops. 
It seems that the Garden of Eden is elevated on a mountain. You have rivers flowing from it. The Lord meets Moses and gives His law on Mount Sinai. Even the previous chapter in Mark 10, the transfiguration took place where? On a mountaintop. That's the kind of place where you meet with God. And so on, all throughout the Bible. And the Jews called Jerusalem Mount Zion. Mount Zion, it fulfilled the special and holy function of being the closest that you could get to God. So you may have caught in verses 32 and 33 that they were going up to Jerusalem. Well, you might say just topographically, thinking of elevations, they're climbing, they're going uphill. From wherever else you were in Israel, you would go uphill to Jerusalem. And it was symbolic as you rise toward the temple for worship that you are, in a sense, you're climbing a staircase to get a little bit closer to God in His heavenly dwelling. And you see this kind of symbolism all over the Bible. This is why Psalm 23 asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? So in our verse 32 of our text, Jesus and His disciples are traveling up to Jerusalem. They are in fact on a pilgrimage for the Passover. We'll find out later in Mark one of the three annual feasts when all of Israel congregates in that holy city. I mentioned Psalm 24.3 earlier after asking that question, who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord? The psalm goes on to tell us, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, and goes on to describe his blameless ways. It's the holy who can approach the holy place and see the holy one. And never before has the world seen a man who could check off those boxes perfectly. Never before has the world seen one with clean hands and a pure heart like Jesus. Never before has a son of Israel qualified to meet with the Lord and dwell in His presence as Jesus does. Jesus is the son of David for whom Zion itself is so perfectly suited like a glove fitted for a hand. It's of Him that Psalm 24 continues to speak when it says in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The King of glory is Jesus. This city is for Him. The blameless one, with holy hands and a pure heart, He deserves Mount Zion's richest welcome. But as the Holy One climbs the holy hill, What experience does he actually anticipate? It's not glory, but humiliation. He won't be received, he'll be rejected. He won't be praised and honored, he'll be mocked and spat upon. He won't be cherished and trusted, he'll be abused and flogged and torn apart and killed. The honor that belongs to him will be denied Him. The city that was made for His glory, for His rule, will chew Him up and spit Him out. And at the very moment that Jesus is heading up to the holy city, He's heading down into the deepest pit of humiliation as the suffering servant. Becoming, in Paul's words of Philippians 2, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no lower humiliation. There is no more ignoble thing that someone could suffer than obedience to the point of death on a cross. And it's to this, brothers and sisters, that he hustles and he presses on. 
He's not reluctant about moving downward in undeserved humiliation. He's purposeful. He's deliberate. He's resolved. He is the willing servant. The third irony of this picture is that rule belonged to him, but oppression fell to him. Rule belonged to him, but oppression fell to him. Notice that in verse 33, what does he call himself? This is a familiar title in Mark. He calls himself the Son of Man. We've seen this title multiple times. In fact, it's the title he uses for himself every time he predicts his sufferings. And what's so ironic about using this title in this context is that the Son of Man was prophesied as a victorious figure who reigns forever over all the nations. In Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, the prophet describes the vision that he has of one like a Son of Man who's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And here's Jesus once again claiming this favorite title for Himself. The King of Kings is headed for the heavenly city to take up His, his what? His throne? To reign over His enemies from a palace in Zion? It stuns us to hear no. He's going to Jerusalem to take up not a throne, but a cross. He's not going to put His enemies under His feet. No, He's going to put Himself under His enemies' feet. Listen to Jesus' description of His sufferings in verses 33 and 34. And as you listen, notice all of the power that others are exercising over Him. He tells His disciples what was to happen to Him in verse 32. And it goes on saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn Him to death and they will deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And then those Gentiles will mock Him and they will spit on Him and they will flog Him and they will kill Him. Someone else delivers him over. Someone else puts him on trial and condemns him and then gives him to the Gentiles. And they, someone else, mock and torture and kill him. These are all things done to him, things done against him. Where is his kingdom? Where is his dominion? Where is his eternal glory? This is the irony of the cross. The hidden glory is that at the very moment that he seems most powerless the very moment when He seems least like the Son of Man, it is at that moment that He most powerfully conquers and rules His enemies. It's at that very moment, says Paul, that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. In that moment on the cross, at the deepest depths of His humiliation and His subjugation under oppressive power of His enemies. Yes, the Son of Man comes to take up His kingdom by putting Himself under the subjugation, the oppression of others. And in this way, Jesus puts His disciples on notice. For Him as well as for them, there will be no crown without a cross. There will be no reign without rejection. There will be no triumph without tears. 
And yes, there will come a day when He returns to reign over the nations in a complete, open, visible way. That hidden glory that we see in the cross will be open. But for now, His reign is hidden. It's spiritual. And for now, the disciples will follow His footsteps in suffering and service. The fourth irony of this picture is that He came as Israel's deliverer, but Israel would deliver Him up. He came as Israel's deliverer, but Israel would deliver Him up. Now, we, we just heard Jesus describing His sufferings in great detail. How does He know, by the way, that He'll go through these things? Well, for one thing, He knows because He is all-knowing God in the flesh. He's already shown in Mark that He knows the secrets of men's hearts. He certainly knows the future. But also as a man, He knows because of His attentive devotion to the Scriptures. All of this was written about Not only are all these sufferings, the mocking and the spitting and scourging and killing, not only are they written about later in Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion later, but they're also foretold in Old Testament prophecy. I already mentioned Isaiah chapter 50. Listen to uh, Isaiah 50 verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Also places like Isaiah 53 verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he, the servant, was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? But the irony of his sufferings is that he who has come as their Messiah, their anointed deliverer, is being delivered over to death by the very people he came to save. When verse 33 says that he will be delivered over, that passive voice, who's the actor? Who's doing the delivering? Well, this time it will be Judas, that first time it's it's mentioned. And then he's delivered over by the religious leaders over to the Gentiles. Judas was introduced back in chapter 3 as the one who would deliver over Jesus. So Judas will deliver him and betray him over to the religious leaders and they will try and condemn him and they'll deliver him over, pass him down the line to the Gentiles. That's the Romans for execution. And by the way, Gentile simply means the other nations, non-Jews. Now he keeps getting passed off into ever more dangerous hands until they can finally dispose of him. Now we may not think very much of, of this idea of being handed over to the nations But it actually, in the Old Testament background, it it is pregnant with significance. In short, what it means to be handed over to the nations is being sent into exile under the wrath of God. See, this was the, the consequence of Israel's covenant failure in sin and the curse that they brought upon themselves was to be handed over by God to the nations. Uh, Psalm 106 verse 41 describes God's wrath against Israel and it says, He gave them into the hands of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. It's a really terrible situation to be in when you're ruled by people who hate you. And here's how Ezra describes the exile in Ezra 9 verse 7. This is after the exile, he's praying and he says, For our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of of the kings of the lands. 
So when Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ back in chapter 8, what this means is that Jesus is God's anointed deliverer for Israel. He's the one that's supposed to rescue them from the exile. Not just exile uh, in being under the, the thumb of the nations, but their spiritual exile and sin. What would they do to their deliverer? They'll reject him and they'll send him into exile. They'll send him into the place away from God's blessing, the place of God's curse. Uh, Hebrews speaks of him being crucified outside the camp. That's another picture of the same thing, in a place of exile, a place of uncleanness. And this is where Jesus is marching, to be crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. It's not the human lash and the human insult and the human driving of the nails Mostly, he's going to die in a place of exile under the wrath of God for sins not his own. The deliverer will allow himself to be delivered up. And it's in this very way that he will accomplish deliverance. Oh, Christian, see him pressing onto the cross for you to place himself between you and the divine wrath that you deserve for your sins. We deserve to be in the place of exile, separate and removed from God's blessing. And we won't have to face that if we're in Jesus by faith, because he put himself in the place of exile. The fifth irony is that while alive, he would give up power, but while dead, he would seize it back. While alive, he would give up power. But while dead, he would seize it back. We've already seen that verses 33 to 34 detail all the sorts of things done to Jesus. And talked about this as him being under the subjugation, under the oppression of his enemies. All these things being done to him where he seems to play a passive role. He's delivered up, he's condemned, he's delivered up, he's mocked, spat upon, flogged and killed. And all throughout, he seems to sit inert, like on a conveyor belt. He's not doing anything. He's simply receiving the action of others as he goes down the line. But after he's killed, and after three days, something dramatic changes. Suddenly, he does something very active. The one who didn't raise a finger to stop his own death while alive will suddenly jump out of death's hold and pin death to the mat. For a stunning victory when it says, and after three days, he will rise. That is, I, the Son of Man, will rise. This is quite the mic drop moment to say that after all these sufferings. Oh yes, and I'll rise from the dead. Suddenly he's no longer passive but active. And we know that his sufferings, he's not ultimately passive. He put himself, of course you see him moving to Jerusalem to put himself in that situation. But it is people acting on him. But in his resurrection... He's no longer a victim, but a victor. He will rise out of the dead. There are some other places. Often, when the New Testament describes a resurrection, uh, the terminology is that he was raised, which is true too. God raised him by the Spirit. But it's also true to say it this way, that he will rise. He, though dead, will seize life again. It's only after dying and being swallowed up into the belly of the monster that is death that he will cut his way out from the inside, thus defeating death itself. It's in his resurrection triumph that we see his authority most clearly. 
It's in rising from the dead that we see how intentional and willing all his sufferings were all along. It was all part of his plan. He knew he was going to turn it all around in the grave. The human and demonic powers that swirled around him and drove him to the cross, who thought they were winning, they were not in charge. They were not winning. They were simply playing into his hand. On the third day, he will rise. So fellow Christians, our suffering may feel like it has the last word. And indeed, in in this life, in one way or another, suffering will take us. But ultimately, the resurrection has the last word. And oh, what a word of triumph and glory it will be. All other powers that oppose us, whether human or demonic, all other experiences of grief and tears and suffering and sin, resurrection will be the last word for you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, if we're in Jesus. I mentioned earlier that disciples will follow Jesus into suffering. That's uh, a little bit of the implications for discipleship. Again, that'll be the main idea next week. But just the same, we will follow Him into resurrection glory. It's the same pattern for us as it is for Jesus. First, the cross, then the crown. And Paul tells us that we're heirs of God in Romans 8.17 and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The tears feel endless. The suffering and groanings at times feel like they have us beaten, but they don't. Christian, the one who yielded his life as a sacrifice for you has seized it back again. Resurrection will be your last word. The sixth irony here is that he declared his future plainly, though his disciples misunderstood it. He declared his future plainly, though his disciples misunderstood it. In verse 32, the rest of the party Uh, Walking with Jesus, of course there's a bigger crowd, but the the party with him is the twelve disciples. And they react to him with amazement, it says. Now why are they amazed? Uh, Their amazement tends to arise at times when there's a contrast apparent between what Jesus says and does, and then whatever wavelength they're thinking on. Like they're thinking one way, there's a certain uh, way they're seeing the world, and Jesus will say and do something that is totally different, totally contrasting, and they're like, what? And that's what's happening here. And like in verse 24, uh, earlier in this chapter, they were amazed at his words because he surprised them by saying that a rich person was an unlikely candidate for his kingdom. And they were like, we thought rich people had an inside track to the kingdom. What are you talking about? Well, here they're amazed at his body language. They're amazed at the internal drive that is pushing their rabbi forward. It seems that something has gotten into him. And the pace of his ministry is picking up. And they're accelerating toward a decisive moment. It seems that they can see that. Something is about to happen. But throughout the section in Mark, the disciples keep being confused about Jesus. And I don't think they yet really understand what's going to happen, which is why he says it to them again, even though he's already said it twice. They've acknowledged that he's the Christ. They've acknowledged he's the anointed king and deliverer. But they keep confusing his deliverance and reign for an earthly one. They expect him to enter Jerusalem. And they expect him to climb onto a throne and to kick out the evil oppressor Romans. 
They expect him to deliver Israel from the humiliating in-home exile of Gentile rule in their own land. That's the kind of thing they expect when they say you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. That's what they want him to do. That's what they think the Son of David would do. And of course, what that means for them, we'll see this in next week's passage, they think that means that they're, they're on their way to Jesus' inauguration in Jerusalem. And when the Jesus administration begins, they will all get choice positions in his cabinet. Like today, when someone uh, gets connected to a candidate very early on, throws in their support for his campaign, it might lead to good positions later. And because this is a wavelength that Jesus' disciples are on, they are prone to misunderstanding the purpose of his trek to Jerusalem. They are not able to comprehend being a willing, suffering servant. And as crazy as it may be for us to imagine, we read this narrative and we go, he's already said it to you twice, and he's going to say it again, and they're going to show they still don't understand And we can be so critical of their misunderstandings, but if we just look in the mirror for a moment at what we expect, we can see that we too think that we can follow Jesus and still be friends with the world. Following Jesus is a path of suffering and service, even amid countless joys and rewards that come in the line of this service. But sometimes when we're going through the storms, we can lose sight of the path and we can lose our orientation. I love how Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 to suffering Christians. And he gives them this beautiful and so realistic reminder. People who are going through suffering. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. No, you have not missed your turn somewhere. You're, you're, you feel like you're in the storm and, and, and you're disoriented. You're like a pilot who's trying to fly in zero visibility and you're going by your instruments and you're like... Am I I turned around? Do I even know where I'm going? You lose your bearings in suffering and service and following Christ. Here's your orientation. Picture Jesus pressing on toward Jerusalem, predicting His sufferings down to the detail. And as you see that picture here, the Spirit-inspired words of Peter, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is your path, disciple. This is the right direction. You're in the place that you should be. Tears and groaning line the path of discipleship. The whole Christian life is cross-shaped. We've used this term cruciform. And, and, and that doesn't mean that we're achieving eternal life for ourselves at all. Jesus won that for us by His work on the cross. But as followers in His steps, we need to understand His purpose. And His purpose, as I've said before, is first the cross, then the crown. So banish the thought of painless discipleship. Banish the thought of accumulating worldly greatness in the service of the one whom the world so roundly rejected. We wait through the cross and we wait through the three days and we prepare ourselves for resurrection and reversal. So Christian, resolve today that we will not judge our circumstances by what our eyes see and by what our ears hear but we will judge our circumstances by the heavenly orientation of God's declarations and promises, showing us Christ on His way to the cross and saying, this is the grace of God. Stand firm in this. This is your path. The seventh and final irony here is, the world despised Him, yet the world knew that He mattered. 
The world despised him, yet the world knew that he mattered. We've seen already in verse 32 how the disciples react to him pressing on to Jerusalem. They're amazed. And if we think that's an odd response, consider the rest of the crowd. Their reaction to the whole scene, probably to Jesus and his disciples, is fear. They're afraid. Now, throughout this gospel, according to Mark, fear keeps recurring as an alternative reaction to faith when people encounter Jesus. Back in chapter 4, verse 40, the disciples saw him calm the storm with the power of his voice, which is an amazing thing to see someone do. And he says to them after that, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You see the alternatives there? Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? See, throughout this book, Jesus says and does things that forces observers to realize that something remarkable is going on. Someone amazing is here. And they seem to have two choices before them. They can either fearfully ask, who are we dealing with here? And maybe be repulsed by him. Or they can trust him as a son of God. And there just seems to be something grave and weighty about Jesus' manner in this scene, the way he's carrying himself. And it seems that Uh, The the consequences and the weightiness of what he's about to do is apparent somehow in this scene. And it's enough to convince his observers that something amazing and terrible is afoot. But what do they do with this man? What do they do with Jesus? Now, if his own disciples don't understand his purpose, how could the masses understand? It's It's remarkable to realize that this world, which is about to judge and condemn and reject Jesus in Mark's narrative cannot get over the fact that there's something amazing about him. There's something unshakable about him. Something they can't ignore. And it honestly freaks them out. In fact, in Jerusalem, once he gets to Jerusalem, it will be fear that drives his enemies to act against him. In 11.18 of Mark, we'll hear that the chief priests and scribes, they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When you read the story of Jesus and you hear about how the world, his world, his surrounding world reacted to him, you quickly realize that this man leaves no room for neutrality. And today, many people want to take a neutral, uncommitted stance toward Jesus. And maybe that's you today. Perhaps you've pushed out of your mind any notion that you'll have to reach a conclusion about Jesus. Or maybe your conclusion is simply that he was a good man, that he taught some some good things that we could all admire and, and strive toward. Perhaps you've sought to carve out a position for yourself as a neutral observer. But when you look at how uh, he amazed and frightened his contemporaries with a shocking manner, even of walking, driving himself toward trouble and suffering while claiming divine titles for himself... You have to come to grips with the fact that there is no neutrality with Jesus. You might love him and trust him, or you might reject him and hate him, but he is pressing on to his sufferings and rejection like no man and no woman the world has ever known. No one is taking his life from him. He's laying it down as a good shepherd who's making a willing sacrifice. Some of you kids and youth here who maybe have been raised, taught about Christ, maybe your parents teach you about Jesus, and you hear about him here at church, and you're not sure what to do with him. Consider what effect he had on the world around him. 
They knew this is no ordinary man. Behold the servant's willing sacrifice. So if this morning you're with us and you don't trust Jesus, you're a non-Christian, we urge you in Jesus' name to come under His cross today. The sight that we've seen of His voluntary suffering, let that compel you to trust Him. If you trust Him, He laid down His life for you. As we'll hear in verse 45 later, He laid His life down as a ransom to rescue sinners from the wrath from God that you deserve because of your sin and rebellion. And Christian, behold your Christ. May His determination to save by suffering once again soften your heart. May it draw out of your soul worship and adoration to Him. And today we have a great privilege. We don't only have words to show us the servant's willing sacrifice, but we have a tangible enactment of it. It's not one of the passion plays where we dress someone up like Jesus and put them on a cross. We don't do that. We have an actual drama God has given us. Jesus has gifted us with a practice, a ritual, that visibly displays the glory of His sufferings for us. We've heard Him proclaim it to us, to our ears in His Word, and now He's going to seal it further to our hearts as we taste and see it in the Lord's Supper. Uh, Let me lead us in prayer before we move into time of the Lord's table. Father, we praise You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, for His determination to obey You and to love His sheep by laying down His life. As You shepherd our souls, Jesus, risen One, as You care for us, In the green pastures of your grace and truth, please feed us with the sight of your sufferings. Whether we need to be humbled to faith for the first time, whether we need to be encouraged and renewed in a a season of discouragement and depression, or whether we need to be warned in uh, times that are are, we're flying high and feeling good and may be prone toward either uh, self-righteousness or falling into legalism. We once again need to see what Jesus has done for us. We pray that you would seal this to our hearts and minds. And as we approach the table to take the bread and the cup to remember this suffering sacrifice, we pray that it too would nourish our souls as we meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen.